Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Well, this is the Women of this Death is the Row. the Women of Death Row. I'm Amanda. I'm Marielle. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. We're happy to have you. Oh. You went first last time. I did. What your, kind of story do you have? Mine's like an oldie one. So is mine. But it's not, there's not murder involved, really. Okay. So, depends on how you want to end it. I feel like mine's going to leave us with a lot of questions. Okay, but I'll just go do mine. All right. Yeah. Okay, so this is a story I've had stuck in my back pocket because I think this was the one where we recorded the episode with two microphones and it didn't work out that well. Oh. So you've heard this. I don't remember. But you don't remember it. So um, I'm going to talk about the Rosenbergs, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Right. You know what? I was actually looking for that episode. I was like, I know she talked about that. What the uh-huh. fuck happened? And it's that's why. It's that episode. It which was the last episode. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> resurrecting this. I refreshed it a little bit today. And so Ethel Rosenberg was an American citizen who was accused and convicted alongside her husband, Julius Rosenberg, of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. The couple were accused of providing top secret information to the Soviets about the atomic bomb. Casual. What I'm about to tell you takes place during the Cold War, when pretty much all the parties involved in that were engaging in some form of espionage. Like, (laughs) people, yeah. So... Also, at that time, the U.S. was the only country in the whole world with nuclear weapons. Mm. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. Just push a button. (laughs) (laughs) The Rosenbergs were convicted of espionage in 1951, and they were executed by the federal government in 1953 in the Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Ossining, New York. So my sources include Wikipedia and History.com. So Ethel Greenglass was born to a Jewish family in Manhattan, New York, in 1915. Ethel had aspired to be a singer-actress, but she eventually took, like, a secretarial-type job at a shipping company. While working at that company, she joined in on some labor disputes. I'm Mm. sure she wasn't getting paid much and getting treated like shit. So Ethel met Julius Rosenberg in 1936 when she joined the Young Communist League. And then they got married in 1939 and had two kids, two sons. In 1940, Julius joined the Army Signals Corps, where he engineered laboratories at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Nice. Mm -hmm. Anyway. This particular base conducted important research on, like, electronics and then, like, communications, radar, and guided missile controls. So because of his position as, like, a communist and he had this, like, job that did, like, electronic secret stuff, people saw him as, like, an ass and, like, someone you want to rub elbows with. And then in 1942, he was recruited by Soviet spies. In late 44, Julius became a recruiter for the Russians And ended up supervising other spies, including Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. So he recruited his brother-in-law. David was also an army sergeant and worked as a machinist in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is where the secret atomic bomb was located and where that base was. That was like that secret city, you know. Doesn't have a base. Sorry. There's no base in the Alamo. So David worked on the Manhattan Project, which was a research and development undertaking in World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. The U.S. led it with the support of the U.K. and Canada. So Julius got his hands on thousands of copies of classified reports, including information about a complete proximity fuge, which is something that detonates like a bomb. So, and it's designed to, like, target plane missiles and ships at sea and ground forces. So not only does it launch it, it, like, tracks. On February 8th, 1950, 20 senior government officials met to discuss Rosenberg. Gordon Dean, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, said, quote, 
It looks as though Rosenberg is the kingpin of a very large ring. And if there is any way of breaking him by having a shadow of a death penalty over him, we want to do it. So Ethel's brother, David, was arrested on June 15th, 1950, after Julius Rosenberg's spy ring was uncovered. David ended up being a little bitch (laughs) and confessed to providing secrets to the Soviets. Damn it, David. I know. David. Ew, David. David. (laughs) David also named his own wife and Julius as being involved in the spy ring, but he denied his sister was involved. But like, according to sources, his story changed. Man, what were they doing to him? (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Okay, so here's some info about the confession. David originally has said that he passed atomic bomb data he'd collected to Julius on a New York street corner. After being interviewed the second time, he said that he'd given this information to Julius in the living room of the Rosenberg's apartment in New York. And that Ethel, at Julius' request had taken notes and typed them up and, like, got organized them and stuff. Doing secretarial work. Yeah. When Ruth Greenglass, David's wife, was interviewed, she expanded on the story, saying that, quote, Julius then took the info into the bathroom and read it, and when he came out, he called Ethel and told her that she had to type this information immediately. Ethel then, like, typed it. It was placed, the typewriter was placed on, like, a bridge table in the living room and proceeded to type the information that David gave to Julius. As a result of that testimony, all charges against Ruth were dropped. Oh. So, remember, David said, my (laughs) wife is in on this shit, too. But then on June 17th, 1950, the FBI raided the Rosenbergs' home and arrested Julius on suspicion of espionage based on David's... (laughs) Confession. <laughs> I can't not say it Alexis now. here? So then on August 11th, 1950, Ethel was arrested on the federal courthouse steps in New York City when she was leaving the courthouse after giving her testimony to the grand jury. So this is kind of where I found a, like a little discrepancy here. Like according to History.com, she testified that she had no knowledge of the efforts. But then according to a source on Wikipedia, she pleaded the fifth for all their questions. But uh, they might have it flipped because there's another point in the story where one of those is relevant. (coughs) So then FBI agents took her into custody as she was leaving the courthouse. Her attorney asked the commissioner if she could be paroled to his custody over the weekend so she could make an arrangement for her sons. But it was denied, of course. The FBI hoped that arresting Ethel would milk some more information from Julius mm-hmm. about other people in the spirings and other communist sympathizers, but no one said anything. You're fucking right. You don't snitch. Real fucking gangsta shit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> On August 17th, the grand jury returned an indictment alleging 11 overt acts of espionage. Both Julius and Ethel were indicted, and so was David, her brother. Later, David would do an interview with the New York Times that he made a deal with the government to implicate his sister in exchange for Ruth's immunity. Hmm. Hmm. What the fuck? I would never do that to you, by the way. Yeah. If you go down, we're going down. My name's not Danielle. Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> And Ethel's case was resolved 10 days before the trial when her brother David and his wife were interviewed for a second time. And it was said that they were persuaded to change their story. Ethel and Julius' trial on federal espionage took place March 1951. Ethel's brother David was the prosecution's primary witness. So David testified that he gave Julius a sketch of a cross-section of the implosion-type atom bomb. He also said that this was like the Fat Man bomb dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, as opposed to the gun method triggering device Mm -hmm. used in the little boy bomb used in Hiroshima. So he was like describing the different types. Yeah, fuck Harry S. Truman for that shit. Word. He also testified that Ethel typed notes containing nuclear... U.S. nuclear secrets in the Rosenberg apartment in September 1945. Ethel and Julius pled the fifth to not incriminate themselves when they were asked about their involvement in the Communist Party or what they did with other members. So that might have been where they got to plead the fifth. It's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe in this, so I must automatically be a spy. Yeah. 
Grow up. Get over yourself, America. (laughs) Not all about you. (laughs) Black cars just pull up. I know, fuck. (laughs) They're listening. (laughs) We're in here with our tinfoil hats on because we think that the Chiefs, we had a theory the Chiefs game was fixed. Listen. (laughs) So Judge Irving Kaufman had two choices per sentencing guidelines for Julius and Ethel's espionage. 30 years imprisonment or execution. Imagine if that's what fucking Trump and all his dumbass loser confidants were, whatever the fuck, you can't even call him that. No. Imagine if that's what they were facing. (laughs) What a different time. Right. Well, I was actually trying to look this up and because I thought that espionage was no longer a capital offense. It is. But there's a stay on death penalty right now. Like the article I saw was like I could because I thought espionage was removed as a capital offense in 1972 or something. But because I did that history thing. So I looked back through my notes and I tried to look at different articles. And the, the article I found was like a website published in 2012. And espionage is on there. So anyway. A girl can dream. Right. (laughs) FBI director J. Edgar Hoover suggested a 30-year sentence for Ethel, believing she would eventually spill names Mm. in jail. But Judge Irving Kaufman chose the death penalty for the Rosenbergs. Yeah. David. I didn't say that right. David (laughs) got a 15-year sentence and he just served over nine, almost 10 years. Wow. Imagine. Ethel and Julius were sentenced on April 5th under Section 2 of the Espionage Act of 1917, which states that anyone convicted of transmitting or attempting to transmit to a foreign government information relating to the national defense may be imprisoned for life or put to death. Ooh. Yeah. Julius Rosenberg claimed the case was a political flare-up. Sounds like it. They were transferred to New York State Sing Sing Correctional in Austin, New York, for execution. So the execution was delayed from the originally scheduled date of June 18th, which is just like three days after they got arrested. They didn't waste any fucking time. Because so it was delayed because the Supreme Court Justice, Associate Justice William O. Douglas, had granted a stay of execution on the previous day. That stay resulted from intervention in, in the case by Fike Farmer, a Tennessee lawyer who had previously been scorned by the Rosenberg's attorney. The execution was scheduled for 11 p.m. that evening during the Jewish Sabbath, which begins and ends around sunset. The defense team asked for more time and filed a complaint. They argued before a judge, which backfired. The judge rescheduled it to 8 p.m. before sunset and the Sabbath instead of 11 p.m., which was like the regular time for executions. Mm. So on June 19, 1953, Julius died after the first electric shock. However, Ethel's didn't go as quick. <sighs> she was given the normal course of three shots, and then they removed the strapping and other equipment and her to, so the doctor can listen to the heart, and her heart was still beating they gave her two more shocks and eyewitnesses reported that smoke was coming from her head what the fuck that's barbaric joseph botched that yeah joseph frankel who was a state electrician was the executioner funeral services were held in brooklyn new york on june 21st ethel and julius were buried at wellwood cemetery which is a jewish cemetery in pine lawn new york Mm. The Times reported that over 500 people attended while some 10,000 stood outside. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. The bodies were brought from Sing Sing by the National Roseburg Committee, which they paid for all the funeral arrangements, the vigils and everything. Most of them regarded the Rosenbergs as like these martyred heroes and more than 500 mortars attended. Mr. Block, who was their attorney, delivered one of the main speeches what are those called? Eulogies? Yeah. He exclaimed that America was living under the heel of a military dictator garbed in civilian attire. Mm-hmm. The Rosenbergs were sweet, tender, and intelligent, and the course they took was one of courage and heroism. That's right. Yeah. The Rosenbergs were the only two American civilians to be executed for espionage-related activity during the Cold War in an American history. They actively protested their innocence until the very end. They were survived by their two minor children. And on one of the articles of history.com, you can see there's a picture of the two boys reading a daily newspaper 
with the headline spies get one more day Uh, imagine mm. they looked no more than like 10 or 11 wow so prior to the executions there was a publication of an there was an investigative series published in the guardian about the rosenbergs and then americans came to believe that ethel and virgilius were actually innocent or received too harsh a sentence especially ethel you think um Mm. And then, so a grassroots campaign was started to prevent their execution. And then, I think this one's from a Wikipedia article. Between the trial and executions, there were widespread protests and claims of anti-Semitism. The charges of anti-Semitism were wildly believed abroad, but not among the vast majority of the U- in the U.S. At a time when American fears about communism were high, the Rosenbergs did not receive support from mainstream Jewish organizations. Oh, and the American Civil Liberties Union refused to acknowledge any violations of civil liberties in the case. (laughs) Aren't they cute? With their blue vests. (sighs) God. Protests supporting Ethel and Julius started across the world, especially in Western Europe. American newspapers wrote articles supporting them. And even the Pope at the time was asking for clemency. Wow. Yep. President Eisenhower was supported by the media and public opinion at home, and he ignored everything that those people yeah. were demanding from overseas. Any criticism. Yes, any criticism. Jean-Paul Sartre? Sartre. Sartre. Okay. A Marxist existentialist philosopher and writer described the trial as, quote, a legal lynching with which smears with blood a whole nation by killing the rosenbergs you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice magic witch hunts sacrifices we are here getting to the point your country is sick with fear you are afraid of the shadow of your own bomb yep other non-communists protested the position of the american government including einstein communist or other left wing including frida kahlo protested as well mm-hmm. Einstein and Yuri, is that Yuri? Yuri, yeah. Pleaded with President Truman to pardon the Rosenbergs. In May 1951, Pablo Picasso wrote for the French communist newspaper La Humanité. The hours count, the minutes count. Do not let this crime against humanity take place. And then the All Black Labor Union International Longshoresmen Association, local 968, stopped working for a day in protest. Wow. Cinema artists such as Fritz Lang registered their protest. It was Pope Pius the Eighth, no hmm. seventh, appealed to President Dwight D. Eisenhower to spare them. Wow, yeah, but he refused, and all appeals were denied. Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah, the Red Scare was real. Yep. So this is from History dot com, and it kind of goes into like the political flex that julius was talking about Mm -hmm. and also this red scare it's like how did paranoia during the cold war influence these proceedings and according to dr arne kislenko one reason for this lasting controversy of this case was because of the harshness of the sentencing Mm -hmm. he says he sees the convictions as coded to a time when the united states wanted to look strong on soviet aggression and around the world like literally Flexen. Yep. Particularly during the Korean War. He says, quote, needless to say, it was a bit of pander to the increasingly vitriolic anti-communism of the period, mostly coming from Joseph McCarthy and mm. his associates. Yeah, that old McCarthyism mm-hmm. thing. There's been continued doubt specifically about Ethel's role in the whole thing. In 2016, the Rosenbergs asked President Barack Obama... Obama <laughs> Obano. Obana. <laughs> to pardon Ethel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that. I can't wait to hear what it sounds I don't know what that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, according to Kislenko, Ethel's guilt remains a question because of the lack of documentation, both in terms of, like, proof offered during the period, like, during her conviction and, like, after, and in Soviet documents released decades later, like, there wasn't really any documentation of it. But most historians say she was guilty. 
Hmm. Okay. So was justice served? Some people believe the Rosenbergs were victim of a surge of hysterical anti-communism feeling in the U.S. Agreed. Yep. Many protested the death sentence handed down, and they were saying that it, you know, violated the Eighth Amendment of cruel and you know, unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. Many Americans believe the Rosenbergs were dealt justly. They agreed with President Eisenhower. He issued a statement declining to invoke executive clemency. He stated, I can only say that by immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. (laughs) The execution of two human beings is a grave matter, but even graver is the thought that of the millions of dead whose deaths may be directly attributable to what these spies have done. Just all fear. <laughs> oh, my God. Fear-mongering. Yeah. And so that Dr. Kislenko points out that a conspiracy theorist, Morton Sobel, corroborated Ethel's involvement in 2008. Also subsequently released Soviet KGB documents to portray Ethel as a prominent participant in her husband's activities. So his view is that she's most certainly in the know about her husband's activities and again persuaded by KGB documentation that she played more of an active role than imagined by her defenders. But, you know, there's still reservation of how about how justice was served He says, I hold fast to the fact that her trial, like Julius's, was handled terribly, with many improprieties so bad that they should never have been convicted, let alone executed. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the Rosenbergs. I have a little Red Scare anecdote. What's that? The company Sherwin-Williams was relatively new then, and they had a new ad campaign, which was a picture of the globe and a can of paint and the globe said cover the world but the paint was red oh god so everyone's like oh my god they want to cover the world in red they want they want to those commies yeah exactly wow that's interesting it's communist propaganda yeah interesting man we both have some like pretty like significant historical things only mine's mine's very significant in the uk okay because this is the last woman to be hanged and actually her case is really what led to the abolishment of the death penalty in the uk interesting yes so have you ever heard of ruth ellis that name sounds familiar okay was she one of the salem witch trial people no Oh. And that was in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth Ellis. Um, so this, so her trial was in 1955. So okay. same era as yours, really. She was born Ruth Hornby in the Welsh seaside town of Rill, the third of six children. During her childhood, her family moved to Basingstoke. Uh, her mother was a Belgian refugee from like World War One. And her father was a cellist from Manchester and spent a lot of his time playing on Atlantic cruise liners. So Ruth attended Fairfield Senior Girls School in Basingstoke, um, leaving when she was 14 to work as a waitress. Uh, Shortly afterwards, in 1941, at the height of the Blitz, was like the post-World War II, Mm. like very nationalist thing going on in uh, Britain. Uh, her family oh, moved to London. Pontini. Sorry, I was trying to figure out what it said. Anyway, her family moved to London. Her family moved to London. In 1944, 17-year-old Ruth became pregnant by a married Canadian soldier and gave birth to a son, Claire Andre Nielsen. Mm-hmm. And I guess he was known as Andy. Aww. The father sent money for about a year, but then stopped. So she was an unwed 17-year-old mother, which was very scandalous at the time and arguably still oh, is. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Not much um, has changed. Right. Ruth's mother took care of the child when Ruth went to make a living working at clubs. She was a nightclub hostess. She kind of got into it by doing softcore modeling work. And, like, clubs back then are not at all what they are now. So, like, back then it was, like, the basement of, like, a deli or oh. the upstairs of like 
you know. Yeah, it was. Or like the front room of some business or. Yeah. The downstairs of an apartment. It was more low key. Yeah. She's a working class girl. She's working among London's upper echelon of the nightlife. And so she uh, she needed to adopt a posh London accent because the staff needed to be like portraying high class. Mm hmm. People believe she also engaged in sex work because of her working in the nightlife, but, like, it doesn't matter if she actually was a sex worker because, regardless, people believed the rumor. Yeah. Because of her work, and she wore makeup, and she dyed her hair, and she was sexually active. Like, Ruth yeah. was a beautiful, blonde woman, yeah. and she dressed well. Like, she liked to put herself together. Like, she had that platinum, like, Marilyn Monroe mm. hair that and she so, styled. and Right. People make assumptions. She was very glamorous. Automatically sexualize mm -hmm. her in every capacity. Yes. So then early in 1950s, she became pregnant, but she had an illegal abortion, which back then, that was, like, back alley. Yikes. Very dangerous. It's amazing she didn't die. She had that in the third month of her pregnancy, and then returned to work as soon as she could. On November 8th, 1950, she married 41-year-old George Ellis, who was a divorced dentist with two sons. He'd been a customer at the court club where she worked. He was a violent alcoholic, jealous, possessive. So the marriage deteriorated rapidly. He was convinced she was having an affair. Of course. And Ruth left several times, but would return. Like, you know, typical abusive relationship. Yeah. In 1951, while four months pregnant, Ruth had appeared uncredited as a beauty queen in the film Lady Godiva Rides Again. Wow. Yes. Googie used to reference that movie all the time. Hey, Lady Godiva. <laughs> well, do you know what Lady Godiva did? She was like, I don't remember where it took place, what European country, but she, her husband was like a king of some whatever kingdom <laughs> the king of the kingdom <laughs> king of the castle and uh she wanted to protest his high taxes because she didn't think oh. he was treating their citizens fair so she rode her horse naked oh, through the town right. square and her hair was super long and, yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay so ruth became close friends with the production star diana doors doesn't matter because that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> she subsequently gave birth to her daughter, Georgina. George refused to acknowledge paternity and they separated shortly afterwards. Wow. Yeah. Ruth and her daughter moved in with her parents and her son and she went back to hostessing to make ends meet. In 1953, Ruth Ellis became the manager of a nightclub called The Little Club. Mm. She rented the apartment above the club and at this time she was lavish with expensive gifts by admirers and had a number of celebrity friends this is where she meets david blakely a very wealthy race car driver but mm. like he's not just wealthy from his race car driving his family's got like old money real rich gotcha just like her marriage to george ellis david was an abusive piece of shit in photos of david ruth and there's a lot of them you can see bruises that cover her arms Ugh. yeah they had a very intense relationship, even though David had been engaged to more, quote, suitable women. Wow. And it's something that Ruth was aware of. Like, they pretty much let her know, like, he wouldn't introduce her to his family because she was from a lower class. She was working class. But she was like, whatever. She wasn't too bothered because she had another lover, Desmond Cussins. He was born in 1921 in Surrey. He'd been a bomber pilot in World War II. People described him as a man who would have done anything for Ruth. Mm. He was also wealthy, and he inherited his family business, which was a wholesale and retail tobacconist. Uh, even though he was rich, he wasn't a snob like David. Ruth continued her relationships with both of the men. Her and her son went back and forth between living with either of them, and Ruth was very open to, about David to Desmond because David was like a safety net. A tutor described Ruth as looking like she was on the brink of a breakdown. Her love triangle was toxic. She lost her job and was kind of spiraling. Oh, no. So David offered to marry Ruth, to which she accepted. She became pregnant, and then things took a bad turn. Two weeks before Easter, David punched Ruth so hard in the stomach that she miscarried. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, around this time, the police were called to Desmond's for a domestic disturbance. 
and David was there, and David told the police that Ruth tried to stab them, and I'm kind of just like, what the fuck? It's just like this weird moment where everything was kind of like coming together, and then it doesn't really go anywhere. Like, there's nothing. It's just like a weird moment. Yeah. Sounds like a movie scene. Yeah. No one gave a shit about domestic abuse, so like police didn't do shit. Well, the police are also hitting their wives, so. Yeah. By Good Friday, David was finished with Ruth. David went to Hampstead to visit Anthony and Carol Finlater. Ruth was not a fan of the Finlaters because they always made her aware that she wasn't good enough to be associated with him. They're just like fucking classist assholes. Ruth knew of David's whereabouts and called the Finlaters several times asking to speak with him. But they kept telling her he wasn't there. She kept growing more frustrated, and so she had Desmond drive her to Hampstead. She sees David's car, and she decided to open the windows to be petty and let the rain in (laughs) to try and ruin his interior. She spent Easter weekend with Desmond and her son and stewed over her anger over David. David. (laughs) Right? There's so many Davids. (laughs) What the fuck? On Easter Sunday, she put her son to bed and hopped in a taxi, heading for the pub in Hampstead where she was sure David would be. And she was right. So she waited patiently outside for David, and when he emerged with a friend, Ruth called out to him multiple times, and he ignored her like a fucking asshole. And so as David was searching for the keys to his car, Ruth took out a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson Victory Model Revolver from her handbag and fired five shots at him. The first shot missed, and he started to run, and she pursued him around the car. She fired a second. He collapsed to the Holy pavement, shit. and then she stood over him and fired five—no, wait. She stood over him and then fired three more bullets into him, and one bullet was fired so fucking close that it left fucking gunpowder burned on his skin. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then she shot the final bullet just into the ground, and the bullet ricocheted, injuring a bystander. Like, it hit their hand. Oh, my God. I thought it was going to say it hit her. No, it it hurt some... I don't remember what the lady's name was, but some (laughs) innocent bystander. Oh, no. Yeah. So, Ruth, in a state of shock, just said, call the police. She was arrested immediately because there was an off-duty policeman that was actually in the club named Alan Thompson. Mm. He took the gun that was still smoking and put it in his coat pocket, and he heard her say, I'm guilty. I'm a little confused. She was taken to Hampstead Police Station where she appeared to be calm and not obviously under the influence. She made a detailed confession to the police and was charged with murder. David's body was taken to the hospital with multiple bullet wounds to the intestines, Mm -hmm. liver, lung, aorta, and trachea. Jeez. Which, pause, because, well, maybe I should wait till we get to the trial to say this. One, two, three, four. Uh, So Ruth's crimes were immediately eaten up by the press. Imagine oh, that yeah. beautiful blonde woman kills her lover. So well, this sounds like a movie, right? Right, exactly. And it's actually some people theorize that this might have been what inspired the musical Chicago. Oh, because she very much—it's the kind of the same thing. She's this beautiful blonde who, um, then they try to make her seem like she's this young innocent country yeah. girl on trial and yeah. sort of that whole thing. For crime reporters of the era, it was basically just a fucking gift wrapped in a Chandler-esque prose. Like, one headline read, Six revolver shots shattered the Easter Sunday calm of Hampstead, and a beautiful platinum blonde stood with her back to the wall. In her hand was a revolver. That's how the Daily God. Mail reported it. and Scene by scene. They would probably still report it like that. Oh, Daily yeah. Mail would probably still be like, this hussy killed her lover. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scorned lover <laughs> shot 17 times. Yeah. Gun exploded. And her dress popped off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in its coverage of her committal hearing at Hampstead Magistrates Court, the paper noted that in an off-white tweed outfit with black velvet piping, she sat in the center of the crowded court, calm and expressionless. The police interrogated Ruth and took a statement at the Hampstead Police Station. She made her first appearance at Magistrates Court on the 11th of April, 1955, and was ordered to be held on remand. Hmm. Which I don't know what that means because I don't know the court system in Britain. I don't know what that means either. <laughs> I'm going to assume it means 
on bail. Like she can't there get out. There you go. Maybe. Maybe. I could have Googled it. <laughs> you guys are back. Hello, our four-legged friends. Ruth was twice examined by a principal medical officer who did not find evidence of mental illness, and she undertook an electroencephalography. <laughs> I know. What? <laughs> Don't make me say it again. <laughs> an examination. I'm assuming that means a picture of your brain. Sure. Electroencephalography. Encephalography. Encephalography. <laughs> it's a thing with your brain. It's a thing with the brain. Yeah. yeah. But also, like, what? How were they assessing her for mental illness in yeah. the 50s? Yeah. Especially when they still were, like, believed women were just fucking hysterical. Like, yeah. the movies back then, women getting slapped when she was being hysterical and crying, and they just fucking slap her, and then all of a sudden she's yeah. submissive and okay again. Yep. Yeah. She was also examined by psychiatrists for the defense and by one on behalf of the home office, mm-hmm. which I assume is the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Neither found evidence of insanity. Um, on June 20th, 1955, Ruth appeared in the number one court at the Old Bailey, London, before Mr. Justice Havers. She was dressed in a black suit and white silk blouse with freshly bleached and quaffed blonde hair. Hmm. Her lawyers expressed concern about her appearance and her dyed blonde hair, but she did not alter it. She's like, no, bitch, this is me. I'm fabulous. So that's that kind of like Roxy Hart thing. Only Roxy did alter her appearance to like help look innocent. Yeah. Uh, The only question by Christmas Humphreys, counsel for the prosecution was, when you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? And she said... It's obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him. The defending counsel would have advised Ruth of this possible question before the trial began because it's standard legal practice to do so. So she just is like, I don't care. I'm going to say this. Her reply to Humphrey's question in open court guaranteed a guilty verdict and therefore the mandatory death sentence at the time that followed. Right. The jury took 20 minutes to convict her. Oh, God. They Hated yeah. her from the beginning. Yeah. She received the death sentence and was taken to the condemned cell at Holloway. Oh, no. Yeah. Ruth told her mom that she did not want to petition to reprieve her from the death sentence and took no part in the campaign. However, her relatives urged her solicitor, John Bickford, to pe- petition to the home secretary, and he wrote a seven-page letter setting out the grounds. It was decided that there were not sufficient grounds, however, to recommend any interference with the due course of law. Mm. In a final letter to David Blakely's parents from her prison cell, she wrote, I have always loved your son and I shall die still loving him. Mm. Yeah. Piece of shit. A bishop visited Ruth just before the execution. 30 seconds before 9 a.m. on Wednesday, July 13th, the hangman... And his assistant entered Ruth's cell at Holloway Prison and escorted her five yards to the execution room next door. She'd been weighed 103 pounds the previous day, and a drop of eight feet, four inches was set. Yeah. Imagine having to be weighed so they can, like, do the mathematics on your rope. They carried out the execution in 12 seconds, and her body was left hanging for an hour. Her post-mortem report was made public. And at that time, wow. you could get on the train, which they call the tube, straight to, like, the site of execution. So people were like, oh, let's go watch an execution today. Yeah. Just like it's a regular Sunday activity. Mm-hmm. People are sick. Yeah. <laughs> the case caused widespread controversy at the time, evoking exceptionally intense press and public interest to the point that it was discussed by the cabinet. Hmm. On the day of her execution, it's like, you're a little late. <laughs> yeah, she's already... Yeah. On the day of her execution, Daily Mirror columnists wrote a column attacking the sentence, writing, The one thing that brings stature and dignity to mankind and raises us above the beasts will have been denied her. Pity and the hope of ultimate redemption. A petition to the Home Office asking for clemency was signed by 50,000 people, but the conservative Home Secretary... Major Gwim, I don't know how to say his name, Lloyd George, rejected it. So they openly questioned whether capital punishment 
of a female or of anyone had a place in the 20th century. The novelist Raymond Chandler, then living in Britain, wrote a scathing letter to the Evening Standard referring to what he described as the medieval savagery of the law. Mm. Yeah. Though the British public as a whole supported the execution of a murderess, the hanging helped strengthen public support for the abolition of the death penalty, which was halted in practice for murder in Britain 10 years later. The last execution in the UK occurred in 1964. Reprieve was by then commonplace. According to one statistical count, between 1926 and 1954, 677 men and 60 women had been sentenced to death in England and Wales. Wow. But only 375 men and 7 women had been executed. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Little gender bias there. Yeah. (laughs) In the early 1970s, John Bickford, Ruth's solicitor, made a statement to Scotland Yard from his home in Malta. He recalled that Desmond Cusson told him in 1955 that Ruth lied at the trial. Bickford kept this information to himself after, for whatever fucking reason, after his confession, a police investigation followed, but no further action regarding Desmond was taken. But... The gun was his the day before, and this was actually corroborated by her son, who was 11 at the time, who said that he remembered his mom getting the gun from... One of the dogs is snoring. He remembered his mom getting the gun from Desmond. He remembered them driving around and stopping by the woods, and and Desmond was teaching his mom how to target shoot like Mm. at a tree, and... Remember how it said a taxi drove her to the oh, place? Oh, he. So taxis were just like black cars with like yellow lights, and he actually just drove one. He wasn't a taxi driver; he didn't pick people up, but he drove one. Interesting. So the taxi that took her to there was him. Yeah, but none of this was brought to the trial. Wow! And for whatever the fucking reason, this guy didn't actually. He did tell them, but they they, they just didn't, didn't want to hear. Yeah. They just wanted to convict her and hang her. Yeah. Uh. So. Her husband, George Ellis, this is what happened, like, this is the fallout of everything, like, her family, how they were impacted. George Ellis descended into alcoholism and committed suicide by hanging at a Jersey hotel on August 2nd, 1958. In 1969, her mother, Berta Nielsen, was found unconscious in a gas-filled room in her flat in Hemel Hempstead. She never fully recovered and was not ever able to like speak coherently again mm. her son andy who was 11 at the time of his mom's hanging took his own life in a bed sit in 1982 and i read that it was shortly after desecrating his mother's grave but i don't i don't know i i interesting meant to google that more but then i also was like i don't know if i want to read that the trial judge, Sir Cecil Hayers, had sent money every year for Andy's upkeep, and Christmas Humphreys, the prosecution counsel at Ruth's trial, paid for his funeral. Mm. Ruth's daughter, Georgina, who was three when her mother was executed, was fostered when her father killed himself three years later, and she died of cancer at the age of 50. Oh, no. Yeah. That's terrible. I know. Isn't that a fucking tragic story? That is fucking Apparently, that's a huge fucking story in the UK, though. Like, really? That is still, like, talked about. Like, I even found, like, recent articles, like, still talking about her. People are like, still, still analyzing it. Yeah, and I've, there's, like, movies and, like, made-for-TV stuff. Let me um, read my sources. Man. So, I read a article from The Guardian by Duncan Campbell. I also read from the Irish Times, Ruth Ellis, the model who smiled at her Executioner, written by Shilpa Ganatra. She smiled at her executioner? Yeah, actually, um, I don't know if that's actually accurate. I didn't put it in here because I just was like, that seems like bullshit. Yeah. And then also from History Extra and CapitalPunishmentUK.org. Okay. Yeah. Man, that was so sad. I know. Oh, let me show you. She had zero chance. And neither did the Rosenbergs, really. They were such a cute couple. Oh, my goodness. Beautiful. I just imagine her British accent, but she, like, had it all, like, posh. (laughs) Wow. Come on. Yeah. That's him, the one that was supposed to be so fucking handsome. (laughs) He looks like a dweeb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Look at the bra. I know. That's her soft core. Yeah. 
Wow. Just look how fucking glamorous they are. Hang on, there's one photo where she looks super fucking glam. Obviously all these. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, she was like fucking Marilyn Monroe. This is... Wow. She's only 30. Yeah. 29, actually. 1926, 1955. So freaking... There she is with her son. Poor kid. I know. Yep. Wow. Um... Yeah, so anything not depressing? Mm. I kind of have something funny that reminded me whenever we were... What were we laughing about? We guessed something way off. What? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, we were guessing the price of MacBooks. And oh, yeah. <laughs> um, So we did this little, like, just for fun, like, little statistics quiz based off statistics from the uniform crime report and here's the questions it was just about murder i actually want you to answer these okay (laughs) in 2016 the estimated number of murders in the nation was 2016 Mm -hmm. 1200 1200 12,000 okay this was what percent increase or decrease from 2015 was it an increase or decrease 12,000 an increase from what year 2015 the year report it was an increase how much? Like what percent? I would say like 3%. There were how many murders per 100,000 people in 2016? So per capita. Shit. People. How many murders per 100,000 people? Well, let's see, I guess 12,000. So I'd have to say 1,000. 10,000? No, just a percentage. Oh, a percentage. Per, like 10%. Okay. And of the estimated number of murders in the United States, where do you think the most are reported in the country? Which region? I would say like a coastal region, like East Coast, Florida. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so here are the answers. In 2016, the estimated number of murders in the nation was 17.2 thousand. Okay. Which you did a lot better. There were people in my class, myself included, I was like, mm, maybe like 400 thousand. But it's just because that's how much we're scared yeah. to be murdered. It's like we think it's just like a fucking <laughs> epidemic. You get 400 thousand. Some people were like 700 thousand. Someone said like 3 million. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, we're not going to have a population left. That's all Los Angeles. Right. And so that was an 8.6% increase. You were pretty, okay. you were really spot on, actually. <laughs> like, um, and there were 5.3 murders per 100,000 people in 2016. And I wrote 25. <laughs> I'm not a math major. 25. <laughs> I was like, that's whatever. That's right. Um, I did get this last one right because it's this, it's, well, I wrote Southern, but it's the Southeast. Region. Okay. So Florida. Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Florida. Yep. <coughs> I was yeah. on Facebook today and I saw this post that a person had made created the Sims character of Joe from you. Oh my god, with a hat? With a hat. <laughs> made their room, put the glass box in it, created Beck and what's her fucking name? The one he thought he killed. Candace and Love. Love has a sad face. books everywhere giant telescope in the yard it was it was really good i might have i'll post the link but yeah i want to see that i don't get on facebook too much but that shit's funny that is fucking hilarious wow (sighs) yay another day another episode podcast another week another episode i have this funny article from this site that writes satire it's not the onion the world news daily report where facts don't matter (laughs) woman with chronic premenstrual syndrome suspected of 189 murders look at her (laughs) (laughs) san diego california an american woman was arrested this morning in relation to an investigation led jointly by the fbi and the mexican federal police about an incredible series of violence death in california and neighboring neighborhoods (laughs) They said she was suffering from premenstrual dysmorphic disorder as well as chronic hormone disorder (laughs) of killing 189 people between 1993 and 2017. (laughs) She's more dangerous than any of the sociopaths and serial killers that I've met in my career. Even the slightest irritation can make her extremely violent anytime, any day. Yep. (gasps) Chronic hormone disorder. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that hilarious? 
The FBI spokesperson, Bill Davison, claims she is probably the most dangerous individual he has ever met in his 24 year as a federal agent. Look at his face. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it's almost Super Bowl. Super, Super Dole. Dole Monday. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. The Chiefs are going to win. Yep, yep. I put my money on it. Did you really I, bet? No, fuck no. I'm not either. I just would. That's I would, when they would lose. I would put my money on it, but I'm not going to. I could, <laughs> rather. But if I were to, I, they would probably lose. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. Yep. I just lost. Did you see the guy? I don't remember his name, but he's like a little news sensation now. He was supposedly like a bad luck charm. And so his friends made him leave the game. What oh, is- yeah. And then they like shot 24 yeah. points. In <laughs> and they have a bobblehead for him now. That's crazy. Yeah, it's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I finished spinning out. You finished it, too. <gasps> Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That show. I was hooked. Yeah. Then they do such a great job. I was hooked. It was dramatic. It was insightful. It was just well acted. Well acted. Everyone did such a great job. And it's like, I want to live in a ski town now. Right? So much drama. So much drama. I was like, is this really? I mean, imagine, like... Maybe that's what Breckenridge is like. Right, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, think of all the tiny little towns. Sylvie, Breck. Fraser. Yeah. They probably... It probably really is. Uh Uh-huh. For sure. Spinning out on Netflix. So good. Yeah. So good. Very good. I don't have anything else. I'm boring. I'll remember Um, what I wanted to talk about when I get in my car. Right? The only new exciting thing that I really heard today was that Nuvaring will be coming um, generic. So if you suffer from chronic hormone disorder, you can get a generic (laughs) Nuvaring. Wow. (laughs) That'll be nice. I still have that Mirena stuck up there that might or might not be impacted. Oh. We'll be fine. I have health insurance now. Yay! Thank you for listening again. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. Welcome. We're glad Thank to have you. Thank you so much. Please rate. Thank you for your reviews. Yes. And we love getting them, so keep doing it. It's Remember, so we want to get to 50 oh, by, I don't know, let's say episode 50? Yeah, that's a good one. Well, it's it's reachable. It's doable. What Come on, this, guys. 14? Like yes. Oh, Yeah. 50 by 50. Well, we've already beat it. But yeah, we're halfway there. Yep. Halfway there. Uh, All right. So women of death row podcast.com. Women of death row podcast on Twitter. Women of death row podcast on Facebook. 